Sometimes I feel like Jesus couldn't care about me today. Have you ever felt that way before? That Jesus couldn't care about us today? Now, in my heart and my mind, I do know that he cares deeply for me and for you, even though that gracious care staggers me. We can always look to the cross and remember the love that Jesus has for each one of us. But sometimes I feel like Jesus couldn't care about little old me, especially in today's world. After all, he lived 2,000 years ago in a completely different world than us, in such a different and distant time. And he taught and he healed people and lovingly, he mentored his disciples, so obviously he cared about the people in that day. But when it comes to today, we've seemed so far removed from that that sometimes we, it, his care just doesn't make sense to us. I mean, we're a good 20 centuries later in history than Jesus. We live in the days of the internet and smartphones and Twitter and all kinds of things that were never in existence in Jesus' day. And we basically live in a completely different world. And we also think about the church and we think, well, it it doesn't make sense that Jesus would still care about his church today. So far removed from that time. The church has had, over its history, so many ups and downs and ups and downs and apostasies and heresies and then revivals and reformations and heaven knows that our modern church still has many, many issues. Jesus couldn't still care about his church today, could he? We seem so far removed from Jesus that it seems that he must have removed his care from us at some point. And then, we read a passage from the Bible, like the one that we'll be looking at today, that blows that feeling of being removed from Jesus' care way out of the water. Did you know that Jesus, at the most difficult time of his life, took the time to think about us? Did you know that? I want you to take a minute and just think with me. Think about what must have been going through Jesus' mind the night before he went to the cross to die, okay? If you can put yourself in his shoes and think about what was going on in his head, his mind must have been pulled in a thousand different directions, right? He must have been quite anxious about the trial he was about to face. After all, as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed desperately that the cup of the cross would be taken from him. He had to have meditated on what would come after, the eventual outcome of all of this, in order to get through it. The resurrection, the re-glorification in heaven, where he belonged, all the glory that was waiting for him. As evidenced by what we read last week, we knew he was thinking about his disciples, the men that were around him that he had mentored and talked to over these years. He knew that they would soon abandon him, and that they especially needed prayer during this time. We also saw a couple weeks ago that everything that Jesus was doing was in order to display God's glory. So extending his glory and the kingdom of God on earth must have been prominent in his mind, no matter what was going on around him. I would have expected that the future church, years down the road, would have been one of the last things on his mind. It wouldn't make sense that he'd be thinking way down the road like that. But in the midst of all of that going on, Jesus prayed, and amazingly, 
He prayed for us. We've taken the last three weeks to study what I've called the prayer of Jesus. This prayer of Jesus takes place in John 17, and you can turn there now. It's not the only prayer of Jesus we know of, but it is the longest and most in-depth. And this week we're going to conclude our study of Jesus' prayer, taking us to the end of chapter 17. John chapter 17, partway through the New Testament. I believe in your pew Bibles it's on page 903, if I'm correct. This prayer really shows us what was most important to Jesus on earth. It teaches us about God and about prayer, and it describes Jesus' major desires for the church. And I believe it is very appropriate for our church in our season of life right now as a body. It refocuses us, refocuses on God's glory, what's most important. It reorients us to our mission of being a loving and prayerful and united body reaching out to the world around us. Well, another evidence of Jesus' continuing care for his church is the activity of the Holy Spirit. And I know that today the Holy Spirit is still working amongst us in, in our hearts. So would you, as we continue, I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would be here today and be working on each one of our hearts and would speak to us directly from his word. So would you please pray with me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. That he came down to earth to pay our ransom, to free us from sin, to rise again in power, freeing us from sin for all time. We thank you for that sacrifice. We know that your name is glorious and that your love is changing us and calling us to worship. And so we pray that your love today would change us. That we would see how much you love us and be absolutely changed forever because of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start by skimming through a few of the verses in chapter 17 that lead up today to give you an idea of the context. Okay? Jesus began this prayer by focusing in the first five verses on the glory of God. Okay? In verse 1, Jesus said this. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. You skip down to verse 5, he repeats this. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He then continued his prayer by praying for his disciples, like we already mentioned. In verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Speaking of the disciples, yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And continuing down in verse 9, he prays for them. He says, I pray, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And here is his request for his disciples. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He prays again in verse 15, if you skip down a bit. It says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, from Satan. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
Last week we saw that by extension, these prayers that Jesus prayed for his disciples apply to us as Jesus' followers. He would be praying these things for us. However, as we continue today, as he concludes this prayer, we don't need to think by extension. Jesus actually begins speaking directly about the future church. Now, you might be a bit skeptical about this, that Jesus would actually pray for us, but I don't think you will be once you read this. This is where we'll start today in verse 20. John chapter 17, verse 20, he says this, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples, so I'm not asking for the disciples only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. The NIV translates their word as their message. That's what it means. And earlier, we read a lot about God's word. That God has a word that the Father gave the Son, a word to deliver to the earth, to the people of the earth. And that Jesus' followers actually kept this word in order to believe in him. In verse 8, he said, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Then we later saw that Jesus' followers are sanctified. By God's word. In verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So God is a word that we can read about in the pages of Scripture. But here we see that Jesus' disciples also had a word of their own. Though it wasn't really their own, it was the passing on of God's word. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I'd add as a passing thought that we as Jesus' followers today still have a word. We have a message that we are to still be spreading to those around us, to pass on so that others will believe. Verse 20 again, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So we should ask, who believed in Jesus through the disciples' word or message? Who is that that Jesus is praying for? Well, it's every Christian who has believed through to the disciples' message being passed on. Now, that's not just the privileged early church who were able to hear the message firsthand. Because that same message was passed on from that generation to the next generation, and then to the next generation, and then to the next generation, all the way down to us. We've still received the same message that they had. So this speaks to every true believer of Jesus Christ over the past two millennia. The worldwide church today, if you think about it, is really a very much an ever-expanding family tree. It has started with the disciples, and it continues on to this day to expand and grow. And if we knew every detail over the years, we'd all be able to trace our family line back to one of the disciples, and ultimately back to Jesus Christ, of course, the author of our faith. But there's another way that people have believed through their message. You see, a number of the disciples actually took the time to write their message down. Do you know that? We have their message preserved for us to this day in Scripture. Honestly, I don't know if any of us would have come to Christ without the words that they wrote down. It's true. Think about it. Matthew, John, and Peter, three of the earliest disciples, the twelve disciples, wrote large sections of the New Testament. In fact, what we're reading today was written by one of them. The rest of the New Testament 
was written by other first-generation believers that had heard directly from these disciples, like Paul and Mark and Luke and James and Jude. They were all very early, and they wrote the message down so it would be continued on for all time. So, have you believed Jesus through their message? If you truly believed in Jesus, then yes, you have. Their message is still being passed on. Jesus prayed this prayer for you, for me, for us, for our church, for his global church. You can even insert your name in this verse if you want. Where Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for... Put your name there. So, if Jesus prayed this prayer for us, then we wonder, what did he pray for us? What did he pray? What was so important to him that he would consider us in his prayers, especially in this season? Well, what Jesus prayed for us becomes very clear in the next few verses. Continue reading with me and from verse 20, and we'll continue on. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is what we learn from these verses. It's in your notes if you want to keep track. Jesus prayed that we would be perfectly united with each other in God. The prayer of Jesus here for us focused on our unity. Jesus prayed that we would be perfectly united with each other in God. Now this sounds very similar to one of the points we saw last week, where in the previous verses Jesus prayed that his disciples would remain united. In verse 11, it said, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. And now he prays that his future followers would be united as well. He actually repeats the request three times here. He really emphasizes it. He says in verse 21 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Again, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and one final time, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. To be one means to be united. Unity comes from the Latin word for one. So to be of one mind and one heart, one purpose, one goal, one, one love, that's unity. For a good example of unity, you could think of uh, the sports world. Look at any sports world. In any sport, if a team has aspirations to win a championship of any kind, they need to come together as a team. They need to play as a team instead of as individuals. Except maybe in golf. That doesn't really count. But <laughs> if, you, if you think of, for example, the recent NBA champions, basketball champions, the Miami Heat, 
A couple years ago, this team signed three of the biggest superstar free agents out there in order to try to win a championship. And they thought that if they had enough stars on their team, this would, they would automatically, they'd be able to waltz right to the championship. But last year, they learned the hard way that that doesn't quite work. And they ended up losing in the finals. This year, I believe they came together as a much better team. They worked together. Instead of 15 separate players trying to reach their own goals, they became a team, one unified team, and they were much more united than the year before. And they won it all. It really came, it showed their unity. You could say that in the church, we're a group of individuals that are brought together. We, we don't start out united. We're brought together as individuals, but we have to come together as one. Jesus didn't want the church to be 15 or 15,000 or 15 million solo players. He wanted the church to be one unified, powerful team of people. And in verse 23, he says he wants us to become perfectly one. In every possible aspect, we should be becoming more and more unified. Intertwined with unity here is the idea of abiding in and being indwelt by God. Did you see that? In verse 21, he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. This is an important biblical concept known as union with God, or with Christ. That when we're saved... God indwells us in a special way, that we become one with him. He saves us, and he empowers us, and he sanctifies us, and he works through us, all because he's inside of us, indwelling us. We see this idea back in John fifteen four, right before this passage, he had been teaching his disciples, and he said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. It is through union with Christ, uniting ourselves with him, that any of us can be united with each other. That's really the only way, is once we're united with him first. And just like we saw last week, the unity within the Trinity, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the pattern for unity in the church. He said in verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So just like the Father and the Son are united, we're to be united as the church with each other. And this is an impossibly high standard. We can't reach that. But the unity of the Godhead is to be the pattern, the basis for our unity. A very natural question to ask as we read these verses is... So why aren't we unified? If this is so important to Jesus, and he prayed that we would be, why isn't the church unified today? Good question. Simple answer, though. The church is full of sinners. Forgiven sinners, but still sinners while we're on earth. And because of sin... The church will never be perfectly united until Christ returns and he perfects his bride. But just because this goal is unreachable for the time being doesn't mean we should lose the goal. 
This prayer reveals that Jesus is delighted with unity. He loves it when his church is united. And so whatever imperfect unity we can muster up is still pleasing to him. It's pleasing to our Father. And it may be tainted. It may be stained with selfishness. But some semblance of unity is still possible. And we see that through Jesus' words. Some semblance is still possible. Well, we might think if the killer of unity in the church is sin, maybe we should think about what sins in particular we need to watch out for. Of course, any sin could lead to disunity, but I'd say some are repeat offenders. I'll give you three to think about this morning, and the list can be much longer than this, but just think about these three. Okay, the first one is doctrinal error. Doctrinal error. This is the most dangerous form of disunity, and it has caused numerous splittings of the church over the centuries. When we disagree over theology or Christian living, it's hard to stay united. It really is. Now, I have to make a very crucial distinction here between core beliefs of the church, core theologies, and non-core theology, non-essentials. See, we have the freedom to disagree and to differ on non-core issues. We can and should compromise or agree to disagree on, on many things that are a matter of interpretation. Things like tongues, or different types of baptisms, or grape juice versus wine, or, or all kinds of things like this. Okay? But on core beliefs, the things that we hold most dear, things like the nature of God, the gospel, God's word. We have to remain steadfast in our beliefs, in the center of the truth. The Bible is firm and it is harsh when it comes to false teaching. And, this is to be clear, it isn't divisive to cast out wrong teachings. That's not divisive. In fact, that is what the Bible would call it's preserving unity. It's preserving the peace and the core truths of the faith. But doctrinal error is a unity killer. We have to watch out for it. And we have to be humble with our truths. Second one to think about, selfishness. Selfishness. This is probably the most common unity killer. If doctrinal error is the most dangerous, this is the most common. Because we are so selfish as humans. All of us are. We all want our way instead of God's way, or each other's way. We're power-hungry, we're territorial, we're preferential, we're ungenerous. We've got so many selfish opinions that we hold way too strongly. We want our way in how the church is run, how services go, what kind of music is played, what the temperature in the sanctuary should be. Or what color the carpet should be. What events we run. How we spend our money. What ministries we do. And the list goes on and on and on. We have all these opinions. We've got to be very careful of how we communicate our opinions. Because I tell you, our opinions, and I'm, going, I'm speaking for myself as well, our opinions are frequently selfish. We want our way. We've got to hold our truths firmly 
but our opinions very loosely for the unity of the body. A third one just to think about today, a unity killer. I group these three together. Gossip, slander, and harmful speech. Gossip would be spreading rumors, true or false, about other people. Every church has a grapevine, and it's not the right type of grapevine. (laughs) Slander is when you talk negatively about someone. So not just a rumor, but negative things about someone behind their back. And just like gossip, it can be based on truth or falsity. So, for example, maybe in a small group, you complain about someone else in the church. That's slander. You tell someone that so-and-so is selfish or stupid or unloving, whether it's true or not. That's slander. Harmful speech, the third one, really would just be saying these types of hurtful things to the person's face, right in front of them. So gossip, slander, and harmful speech kill unity in the church. They form divisions, and they turn people against each other, one against the other, one party against another, one group, one clique, all against each other. And if a person, if you just think about it, if a person that's being gossiped about or slandered about hears about it, probably seen the last of them around the church. You might wonder, as we read these verses, you might ask, well, Pastor Matt, would you say that we should unite with all other churches? No matter what, we should unite with them. And no, I wouldn't say that. This passage is not in favor of what some would call the ecumenical movement. Some churches are in serious doctrinal error or even apostasy. They've gone so far astray from the gospel that we can no longer in good faith unite with them. Okay? John John Walvard says this very well. He says, Jesus was not praying for the unity of a single worldwide ecumenical church in in which doctrinal heresy would be maintained along with orthodoxy. Instead, he was praying for a unity of love, a unity of obedience to God and his word, and a united commitment to his will. There are great differences between uniformity, union, and unity. I'd add that we shouldn't unite with another church just because they have church in their name. That doesn't make it right. On the other hand, there are other good Bible-believing, Christ-worshipping, gospel-preaching churches. There are, believe it or not. (laughs) And we can certainly unite with them towards our common goals. That doesn't mean we have to form some kind of megachurch or combine with them. But if opportunities come along to work together, to work with other believers, we should take them, jump at them. As your pastor... Can I offer a generalized critique of our church? We, as Calvary Baptist Church, are not good at this. We are suspicious, untrusting, and we don't like uniting with other churches. And sadly, you might not know this, this is our reputation. That's got to change. That has to change. 
if we can help others or be helped by other believers, that is a good thing. It promotes the unity of the body of Christ. It's the kingdom of God working together on earth. We're not out to further our own interests. We're out to further the interests of the kingdom of God, which is way, way bigger than us. We might ask, this is so important, how do we do this? How do we stay united? And that question is really way too big to answer in depth this morning. I'll give you a quick list. Some of the ways we can do so are by staying in close union with Christ first. That's the first priority. For close to Christ, we'll be close to his other believers. Got to stay in step with the Spirit. Follow his leadings. We've got to watch out for those unity-killing sins we talked about. Get rid of them. And we've got to love each other deeply. That love has to always be growing. Rick actually has a great quote. He says, Unity has never been the result of agreement as much as commitment to love someone as much as yourself. That's how unity happens. It's a commitment to love each other as much as ourselves. And I firmly believe that if we love each other like Christ loved us, we will become perfectly united with each other and remain united. Because his love is perfect. We will pursue peace and generosity, and if needed, reconciliation or forgiveness. Ask yourself this morning, is there anyone in the church that you're disunited with right now? Maybe they bug you, or they drive you and your opinions crazy. Maybe you've become bitter against someone over the years. Maybe someone said something hurtful about you or you about them and things have been left unforgiven. These small cracks can fester and become big splits down the road. So make today, take some action steps this morning to get reunited with them this week. It's way too important to leave unaddressed. I think a key thing to understand is the church is not about you. Church is not about me. It's not about us. The church is all about Jesus and displaying his glory to the world. In fact, that's what we see Jesus' desired result of our unity being in these verses. The unity of the church does not further our cause. It furthers his Jesus prayed that we would be perfectly united with each other in God, I put it this way, so that the world would believe his mission and his love. Jesus prayed for our unity so that the world would believe in him, his mission, and in his love. I get this out of verse 21 and 23. He says in 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And in verse 23, he asks that they become perfectly one, again, so that the world may know that you sent me 
and love them even as you loved me. In verse 21, he says, he wants the world to believe that the Father sent him to earth. This is speaking of his mission to save sinners by dying for them. That was his mission. If you were to ask someone on the street today, why did Jesus come to earth? They'd probably say something to the effect of to be a good teacher or to be a good example of love to mankind. Well, those are true, but they're not the whole picture. They wouldn't know how he taught or what he taught or how he showed love to the world. He taught, he taught repentance of our sins. And he showed love in the most astounding way by dying for us. Jesus says here that if the world sees the church united in furthering this mission, it will lead to people believing in Jesus' mission to save them. And in verse 23, it points out that he wants the world to see his love. His love. But the, the way that the world should be seeing his love is through us. Look in verse 23. It says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. It's through our unity that people are supposed to see God's love for them. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus says here in verse 23. This should floor us. Okay, in verse 23, said, So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Love them even as you loved me. Do you get what he's saying? What he's saying is that God loved the world as much as he loved Jesus. Think about that. Steve Lawson, a preacher, he says this, If this were not in the Bible, I feel I was going too far in saying that God loves us as much as he loves his son." And I'm with him. I feel like I'd be going way too far if this was not what Jesus himself said. That God's love is so great that he loves us, each and every one of us, whether we're saved or not. He loved the world as much as he loved his son. That explains why he sent Jesus to die for us. That deep love. He doesn't love Jesus any less. That's cl- that is extremely clear. He does not love Jesus any less, but he loves us somehow just as much. Now this says nothing about our worthiness and everything about his love. That is unexplainable, infinite, gracious, scandalous, shocking love. That God loves us that much. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. Now last week we talked about 
the way that Jesus has set us apart from the world, that we're in the world, but not of the world, and how the world that we are still in is hostile towards us. It's evil. And so we ask now, as we read these words, well, why should we want the world to believe? Why do we want them to join us? After all, they're the ones that are opposing or even persecuting the church. But we should want them to believe in Jesus because God loves them too. And God wants them to believe. And that should shape our love for them. If you think the world opposes you or that it opposes us, they killed Jesus. And yet he says he wants the world to see that he that to know that God sent him and loved them even as he loved me. To top it off, we used to be part of the world. Every one of us, just like them. To not want others to experience the same grace that we have experienced is unbelievably selfish. This great love that God has for the world can also be seen in Jesus' final request. He finishes off this prayer by praying one last thing for us. Something that he would never pray for us if he didn't love us deeply. He said, I put it this way, that Jesus prayed that we would be reunited with him in glory. Jesus' final request is that one day all his future followers would be reunited with him. We'd be reunited with him in glory. We see this request very plainly in verse 24 as we continue. It says this, Father... I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Have you ever been separated from a close friend or a family member for a large chunk of time? Earlier this year, I was separated from my wife and son for almost a week. And I know that isn't that long, and some people are separated for months and years at a time. But over that time, we still missed each other. We wanted to be together, but we couldn't be. Especially at the very young age that Peter was, very developing all the time, every week, changing. We were able to talk by phone and email and Skype, which was great. But you know that those are not, they're just not the same thing as being with the person in person, in their presence with them. Many of you know what I mean. They're substitutes, and they're not very good ones. But when you finally reunite with your loved ones, it's a wonderful feeling. That joy that you just are reunited together. Well, Jesus was leaving his followers behind on earth. And we're still here. Without him, in a way, he's in heaven. And I feel that I can legitimately say this based on this verse. In a way, not the same way we do, but in a way, Jesus misses us. Now, a good question is, do we miss him? Maybe not. But I'd say that's because we don't know what we're missing. In verse 15, 
back in the passage we read last week, he said that he wasn't asking for his followers to be taken out of the world. And that's because we had a job to do. It was for the good of God's kingdom that we stay on earth for the time being. But that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't want us to be taken out. He desires that all of us, all his followers, would eventually be where he is, with him, in heaven. He said that. We just saw, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is waiting with great anticipation for the reuniting of him and his bride. Interesting that reunite has unite as its root word. And just in case you ever think that God begrudgingly saves sinners, and he does it with a sigh, like, I can't believe I'm actually saving you. (laughs) Think again. This passage reveals that it is one of Jesus' deepest desires to welcome us into glory. He desperately wants us in heaven with him. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you notice what Jesus desires for us to experience, though, as his loved ones? He said, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. To see my glory. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't pray for us that once we get to heaven, that we will experience bliss or perfect health or sinlessness or riches or treasure or restored joy, even though we will experience all of those things and more. He doesn't pray for those things. He prays, his request is that we will get to be with him so that we can see his glory. Once again, the glory of God is at the center of all that Jesus desires. That we get to see his glory. And once we get to heaven, we will see Jesus' awesome and breathtaking glory. We'll finally understand why the glory of God is so wonderful. And we will fall further and further in love with this glorious God that we worship. Kevin DeYoung says, the best news of the good news of heaven is the presence of the one we will worship when we get there. That's the best thing about heaven. That's what makes heaven so great. That we will get to be with Jesus, reunited with him for all eternity. This is Jesus' final request, that we would get to be with him one day, experiencing his glory. And God is going to answer that prayer for all who believe in Jesus. But in the last couple of verses... Jesus qualifies his request for the time being. He knows that this is going to be the eventual answer to prayer one day, but in the time being, he needs to ask for something else. And Jesus prayed that we would be reunited with him in glory, but that in the meantime, we'd be filled 
with God and his love. While we remain on earth, Jesus wants us to be filled with himself and with his love. Read with me in verse 25. He says this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So again, Jesus repeats the idea of of himself indwelling us, but he also wants his love to indwell us, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. We've already talked about what it means to have Jesus indwell us, so let's talk about his love indwelling us. I believe having the love of God in us includes two things. Experiencing it and sharing it. I believe that's what it's talking about. So have you, first thing, have you experienced God's love for yourself? Have you seen that you have sinned against God and don't deserve His love at all? but that he loves you passionately anyway? Have you seen that your sins deserve hell, but instead God's love offers you heaven? Have you seen how he showed his love in the most vivid way by sending Jesus to die for us? Have you seen the love in the nails and the blood the thorns the wooden beams. Have you seen that love? Have you seen the way that Jesus rose again from the dead in power so that he could continue loving us to this day? Have you seen his love and his free offers of salvation and forgiveness and sanctification? Have you seen the love that Jesus has to actually desire that you would be with him one day? He wants you there. If not, that's where you have to begin. See his love and let it change you. Let it change your life. Repent of your sins. Call out to God for forgiveness and experience his wonderful answer. You can do this today if you've never done so before. If you have experienced God's love and it has changed you, has your life shown it? Have you begun to share God's love with others? Yes, well, how can we love others with the same love that God loved Jesus with? I would say it's the same way that Jesus showed his love to us. By sacrificially giving of ourselves. Sacrificially serving others. Being generous to them. Sharing what we have. Ministering to others. Praying with them. Sharing the gospel with them. These are all ways that we love with the love that God has given to us. And I don't think there's any way it's a coincidence that Jesus finishes talking about unity by talking about love. Because if God's love is not in us, 
will never truly be unified with one another. So have you experienced it? Have you shared it? Have you ever knitted or sewn something together? Or maybe quilted or crocheted or cross-stitched or anything like that? If you haven't, perhaps your mother or your grandmother has, or you've seen someone doing it, perhaps a quilt or a blanket or a piece of clothing or mittens, socks, hats, anything like that, can even look down at the clothes you're wearing today. They were sewn together at some point, even if it was by a machine. They were sewn together. I think that sewing things provides a great picture of what it means to come together in unity of what God is doing with his church. See, when something is sewn, it's formed out of a bunch of individual parts. Threads or strings and yarn and fabric and buttons and zippers and so on. And they all come together. And parts that are they're rather useless on their own. Some of them are completely useless on their own. But when they come together, they become something useful and strong and durable and even beautiful. And I'd say just like these individual parts, we as individual humans, useless on our own, are being knit together by God. Knit together as his church to become something that's amazing. And not because of us, but because of what he's doing. Something useful to him, something strong, and something that will be very beautiful one day. He's sewing us together with his love and with his power and with his glory. And when we're unified together, tightly knit, we begin to display that glory to the world around us. It's a process, and I know we only see bits and pieces of the finished product. But Jesus isn't finished with his church yet. He's still working on us. And when he's finished, the church will be a sight to behold. It really will be. So may we pray like Jesus prayed. For God's glory to be our sole passion and purpose. For Jesus' love and truth to be spread through our efforts. For us to be perfectly united in God's love by the Holy Spirit. So that, so that the world around us may see and believe and worship our glorious Lord with us. Let's pray. Lord, your love for us is astounding. That while we were still sinners, you came to earth to die for us, to shed your blood to redeem us. Help us to see that love. See the love the Father has for us, which is unexplainable. That, you would, that he would love us as much as he loves his son. Help but that love to not drive us to any kind of pride, but that it would drive us to humility and to worship you for who you are. We pray that you would be glorified in us, in our church, and in every aspect of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.